Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm Adam Proctor. Joining me on the show is journalist Max Blumenthal. We're going to talk about the tragic bombing in Manchester last week and the way in which the West has used a violent and reactionary form of Islam to spawn proxy forces in order to destabilize enemies across the globe. Max has an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the forces involved in these tragedies. So buckle up. There's a whole lot of knowledge coming your way. Stay tuned. This music here is brought to you by Otis McDonald. It's called Fly Away. All of Otis McDonald's music is available on YouTube and SoundCloud. You should check them out. Almost every song that I play, including the intro, is an Otis McDonald track. So give the man a shout out. Support him if you can. In any case, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I'm going to bring you my interview with Max Blumenthal shortly. The man has encyclopedic knowledge. I found myself tongue-tied throughout the course of the interview. i got to say it was very challenging for me. Um, I know quite a bit about this stuff, but, I mean, Max can just run circles around most uh, so-called experts on the topic. I mean, the man just knows so much. I've linked to some books and articles that he mentions during our interview. I've linked to those in the show notes. So if you want to read up and do some contextual research to sort of clarify matters better after this episode, feel free to check those out. In any case... Frequent listeners of the show will be familiar with this portion, and that's when I ask you for your support and your money, if possible. So check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. You can become a subscriber of the show for $3 a month, $5 a month, or $8 a month. I've had a lot of great response from my subscribers, uh, giving me good comments, compliments, constructive criticism even. I appreciate all of it, and I particularly appreciate your love and support. It means a lot to me. I'm doing this on my own. I have a lot of people helping me through the back channels. I have a lot of support in the networks, uh, my, you know, the listeners of the show, friends, uh, comrades. I love you all, and I thanks, uh, thank you for the support. You know, It, it really does mean a lot to me. Uh, so check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Uh, find me on Twitter, at Dead Pundits. Search for me on Facebook, Dead Pundits Society. You'll find my page. You can like it and follow it. So there it is. In any case, right before the interview, I'm going to bring you a two-minute clip. Uh, this pile of garbage is Mr. Tommy Robinson. He's a Brit. He's a co-founder of the English Defense League. It's kind of akin to Richard Spencer and his alt-right thugs here in the United States. In any case, I wanted to bring you his interpretation of the bombings uh, the aftermath of the bombing in Manchester, because it's really important for us to know our adversaries and to know the kind of rationalizations that we're up against if we want to defeat them and produce better answers. In any case, throughout the interview with Max Blumenthal, we talk a lot about how these uh, flare-ups and these blowbacks end up benefiting the far right and that the left needs to come up with a real comprehensive understanding of these forces involved in order to combat it. Here it is. So I've come to Manchester after the terrorist attack last night. And I've started to scratch beneath the surface to find out what problems there are in this city. And I've ended up here, outside this mosque. There's a history of extremism with this mosque. Now, where I'm standing now, 
within a stone's throw, a two-mile radius of where I'm standing now, there's been 16 men who have died or been in prison for fighting for ISIS. 16, just in a two-mile radius of this part of the city. Not the whole city, just this city. Out of one city across the, across the UK. When you start going into the history and the problems embedded in this area, we've seen a terrorist in 2003 called Burgos. Burgos stabbed a police officer, murdered a police officer in a counter-terrorism raid. I was in jail with him yeah, in 2012. He's in control of the prison. He's the main man. So all the people thinking there's a solution to send these men into prison, into normal prisons with car thieves or house burglars, they're running the joint. They're in there living a complete halal life, recruiting and radicalising more and more people. It's not solving our problem. We've seen Andy Burnham, who's the MP for this area. Andy Burnham is on record sitting with an extremist organisation called MEND. This organisation believes that Al-Qaeda are a myth. This is the MP. This is the, the, the mayor of Greater Manchester who's organising a peace vigil today, works and cooperates with Islamic radicals. How can he be claiming he's going to solve the problem? The Justice Secretary for the Labour Party took £5,000. £5,000 off an Islamic radical group. They are in bed with them. Our politicians have sold us out. They're working hand in hand with radical extremists. And, that, and what you saw last night is the end, the end outcome of that. Years and years and years of radicalisation extremism that our politicians have allowed to happen, that continues to happen. And the outco outcome now is our children are being killed. They're being killed. If they're not being raped and destroyed in Rochdale or Rotherham, they're being butchered and, and maimed in city centres, outside concert halls. That's the future for our generations. It's about time people woke up. People woke up. People woke up. People woke up. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today is Max Blumenthal. He's a writer on Israel-Palestine, though most recently he's known for his daring political commentary on the West's push for regime change in Syria and elsewhere. You can find much of his writing on Alternet, where he is the senior editor of the Gray Zone Project. Max, thanks for joining us. How are you? Great to be on with you. So I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about the tragic Manchester bombing from last week. Uh, you, you recently uh, published a piece in the Gray Zone several days ago in the aftermath of, uh, of that suicide bombing where you wrote, The heinous suicide bombing by British-born Salman Abedi at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester was not merely the work of an evil loser, as Donald Trump has called it. It was the blowback from interventionist policies carried out in the name of human rights and civilian protection. So let's start at the end of this story. Uh, Manchester last week. What do we know about exactly what happened and who was involved? Well, we know that Salman Abedi, 22-year-old, born and raised in Manchester, within the heart of the Libyan exile community in the UK, was responsible. We know that he was not the only person responsible. We don't know that, but we can suspect that. His younger brother, Hashim, has been arrested in Libya. His father, Ramadan, was inside Libya and arrived there as part of the rat line that the MI6, the British Intelligence Service, was operating in 2011. His father was a member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, a group of veterans formed out of the CIA-backed anti-Soviet jihad in the 1980s in Afghanistan. Um, which was classified as a terrorist group by the UK and the US, then declassified by the UK, mm. conveniently. And it's just very clear that Salman Abedi had gained his training, his know-how, and his extremely nihilistic outlook in the battlegrounds, not only of Libya, which has been absolutely destabilized by Western intervention beginning in 2011, um, and which continues, um, Qatar, the Gulf ally of the U.S. and U.K., continues to fund um, Islamist militias. 
which are competing for control of this destabilized country, this destabilized failed state, but also in Syria. Right, um, it right. appears that Salman Abedi was also in Syria, where proxy Islamist militias, backed by the U.S., U.K., and their Gulf allies, have taken territory and destabilized large parts of the country. Um, this is where he was radicalized, and this is where he learned to assemble uh, what appears to be a bomb that's much more sophisticated than the kind you could make out of the anarchist cookbook, enough to kill 22 people. So there's a clear connection with Western foreign policy here. This is, I think, one of the most textbook definition cases of blowback, and it suggests uh, much more to come. Um, and it occurred in the middle of a British national election that, that Theresa May, Prime Minister, called. Now, Theresa May was Home Secretary at the time that the MI6 was operating this rat line, meaning that they were sending... According to one person who fought from Manchester in Libya, three quarters of all foreign fighters that fought in Libya against Gaddafi were from Manchester. These included people who were under home or house arrest, um, who were, were under surveillance for ex links to extremist groups, and then they were suddenly given passports and suddenly allowed to travel to the front lines. I was allowed to go to Libya, no questions asked, said one British Libyan who'd been under house arrest. Um, so as Home Secretary, Theresa May's job was to directly oversee the operations of the MI5 and MI6 and make sure that they were accountable to the public, that they were acting in the interests of the public and the interests of British national security. And it's very clear that Theresa May had to have known about this rat line if she was doing her job and that she placed the national security, the, 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 the personal security of British citizens at risk by ignoring the risk of blowback and weaponizing and rearming a group that the British government had classified as a terrorist group just 10 years before. Wow. So I want to I backtrack here to 2008. Uh, in your yeah. Gray Zone piece, you talk about this U.S. embassy cable uh, that described Gaddafi's government as a bulwark against the spread of Islamist militancy. Um, it, it mentioned that Libya has been a strong partner in the war against terrorism and cooperation in liaison channels is excellent, uh, the channel read. And, and hauntingly, uh, somewhat you might say, that, that communique was written by the late Christopher Stevens. Yeah. Uh, tell us who Christopher Stevens was, what happened to him, and what that kind of transformation in 2008 uh, signaled. Well, this, the full story of Chris Stevens, who is a kind of career foreign service officer, spoke a good amount of Arabic. He'd served in Israel-Palestine and was uh, sent to Libya, um, where he was ferrying between Tripoli and Benghazi. Um, is, the full story hasn't been told, uh, at least to the American public although the American public was subjected to week after week of oh hearings on this uh, Benghazi uh, scandal. I mean, the cinematic schlockmeister Michael Bay has even made this action blockbuster film. Benghazi was the subject of the first night of the Republican National Committee, yet the public knows nothing about Benghazi. They understand nothing about it. They've prov been provided with no context. Chris Stevens was killed by one of the militias, Ansar al-Sharia, uh, that came to the fore after Gaddafi was removed. The public does not understand that those militias were not in Libya before Gaddafi was uh, basically sodomized with a bayonet in the street. 
uh, by one of these Islamist militias operating under NATO air cover. They don't know that what Christopher Stevens was doing in Benghazi. Why was he at the Benghazi consulate at a time when riots were erupting across the Middle East uh, in response to an Islamophobic film, uh, The Innocence of Muslims? I mean, the U.S. Cons- the U.S. embassy under in Egypt, in Cairo, was under attack. U.S. embassy in Islamabad was under attack. And Chris Stevens somehow goes into a, hot, a flashpoint of conflict away from the U.S. embassy to the consulate in Benghazi. Benghazi was substantially under the control of Islamist militias. And right near the Benghazi consulate was a CIA station. And Americans don't know why that CIA station was there. It's fairly clear, and it has been reported, um, just not substantially enough, that what was happening was another rat line was being organized to take the heavy weapons out of Libya and ship them into Syria to weaponize the Syrian opposition and extend and amplify the insurgency that was slowly erupting, mostly in the north of Syria, um, and it was a, and it was an Islamist insurgency against the government of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Christopher wow. Stevens was at the heart of that, um, and another person who was at the heart of it was Abdel Hakim Belhaj, longtime uh, proxy of MI6 and leader and founder of the Libyan Islamic fighting group that Ramadan Abedi, the father of Manchester bomber Salman Abedi, had joined. Um, Belhaj actually traveled to Syria, went to the border, and met with members of the Free Syrian Army, These uh, this umbrella group of CIA-vetted and armed Islamist militias. So this is what was happening at the time. And the full scandal has not come to the fore. Instead, we got a fake scandal that was really a partisan game played out in Washington that I think was actually used to cover up and paper over the, how destructive and, uh, and dangerous the Libyan intervention was. Wow. So this rat line that you describe uh, in Benghazi was established more or less to liquidate Gaddafi's military weaponry and yeah. to send it to... Through Turkey to the militants in Syria, and you saw a direct uh, correlation between the uh, after the Benghazi incident and the firepower of the FSA militias who were working hand in glove at the time with the groups that later became Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, and even ISIS. I mean, the Free Syrian Army worked hand in glove with ISIS to capture, for example, the Meneg Air Base, the Syrian Army Air Base in 2013. And the ISIS commander who captured that airbase alongside Jamal al-Qaidi, the FSA commander, who had just had a meeting with the U.S. ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, and they did a press conference together. That ISIS commander was Omar Shashani, Omar the Chechen, who had been trained in Dagestan by the CIA, U.S.-trained ISIS commander. So, I mean, the U.S. fingerprints are all over this disaster. and And, you know, if you talk about it, you're accused of being... A conspiracist, but it's all extremely well documented. Christopher Stevens was put in an impossible situation, and he knew the danger of it, as we can see from this secret 2008 cable. Um, he made clear that Gaddafi had warned that Saudi Arabia sought to encourage, in his words, Wahhabi extremism inside his country, um, and that he was worried about fighters returning from Afghanistan and Iraq who could dest- destabilize not only Libya. Um, but the entire region, 
Now we need to go back from there to 10 years before 2008. Who issued the first Interpol arrest warrant for Osama bin Laden in March 1998 at a time when bin Laden was unknown to the American public? Um, you know, I'd gone back and searched uh, media mentions of bin Laden throughout the 90s. The first one I found was in 1995 in the Washington Post about, um, the, about a Saudi financier named Osama bin Laden financing groups in Bosnia that were actually fighting alongside the U.S., um, but he was simply referred to as a Saudi financier. Um, by this time, the U.S. had no idea who the American public had no idea who he was. American intelligence agencies did. That Interpol warrant was completely ignored by the U.S. and the U.K., um, the French journalist Guillaume Dasquet and Jean-Charles Brisson, who was an advisor to French uh, President Jacques Chirac, alleged that it was ignored um, simply because Osama bin Laden was seen as a useful tool for a lot of things the U.S. wanted to do from Bosnia to Chechnya um, to Libya, where he was working alongside the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. In fact, the person I mentioned earlier Abdel Hakim Belhaj had followed bin Laden to Sudan after he was kicked out of Saudi Arabia and was training alongside him. So when you're talking about the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group that the MI6 has been working with for all these years, you're talking about an Al-Qaeda affiliate. And, and the reason that they're working, it's not some dark conspiracy. The reason they're working alongside it is because they are a reliable partner in advancing uh, the imperial machinations of the West and the Middle East, which entails removing any strongman who resists uh, their uh, economic and political imperatives, and Gaddafi was always one of them. So, you're using so that, you know when we think of our national security state, they're not interested in national security; they're more interested in empire, and they're willing to sacrifice the security of their own citizens for it, as we saw in Manchester. So this tactic of of developing a, a, a proxy force using this sort of extreme versions of Islamism goes back twenty some odd years here uh, in, a, in a direct in a direct line to the Manchester bombing from last week. So let's go back and and let's talk about Salman Abedi's father and and who exactly he was involved with um, in in his time in Libya and what happened from there. Well, I mean, I I, I guess I've been kind of mixing that in um, as into our discussion, but he really uh, represents uh, maybe the third wave of the Libyan Islamic fighting group, which was formed around 1991 after its leader and founder, Abdel Hakim Belhaj, went to Sudan um, at the same time that bin Laden went in 1991. And basically, Khartoum was kind of like a burning man for jihadist militias. you know the, the the spiritual leader of of Sudan. It was you know Sudan was taken over by an Islamist junta. The spiritual leader Hassan Turabi, who's kind of an interesting figure. He's not someone you would call a jihadist, but he wanted to open up Sudan and make it this kind of cosmopolitan center for Islam that would actually challenge Saudi Arabia. And so Bin Laden was a convenient figure because he was very wealthy. He was doing infrastructure projects there, and he. Um, also represented a, a kind of a, a rare rebel who came from the heart of the Saudi royal family and was actually challenging what they 
challenging their, their rigid rule. Of course, if there's going to be a rebel against the Saudi royal family, he's going to rebel from the far right. But bin Laden was not well understood um, to Turabi and figures like that. Um, there was just all these training camps outside Khartoum, and the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group was operating one of them. Hezbollah was there. Hezbollah, which is now a mortal enemy of Al-Qaeda right. and these Sunni Salafi groups, um, was working, was trying to foster um, Shia-Sunni relations. And apparently bin Laden was on board with that. He was much less sectarian than the figures that control ISIS and Al-Qaeda's local affiliates now. Um, in any case, um, everyone's kicked out of Sudan. The Sudanese government agrees to kind of cooperate with the U.S. They go to Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban have, t- have taken over um, after a war of CIA-backed warlords reduces half of Kabul to rubble. And who supports the Taliban? The U.S. They need to restore order in, so that UNICAL can build a pipeline um, through Afghanistan, from Tajikistan, to break the Russian control over oil, over gas from the Caspian Sea. Um, this is well documented in um, Ahmed Rashid's book on the Taliban. I mean, this is, I think, you know, the Bible on the rise of the Taliban by one of the premier journalists working in the region. And a State Department official told Rashid, you know, we're, we're happy to see a, um, you know, a theocratic uh, emirate rise up in in Afghanistan, as long as we get Aramco and Unical. And that's what happened. Uh, with the, the Taliban needed to rebuild the infrastructure of their shattered country. Again, they, they turned to bin Laden, a figure they were deeply suspicious of, to provide them with some liquidity, with some cash. Once again, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group follows. They continue training. Um, and they're maintaining this relationship with British intelligence because their base, part of their base is in Manchester. It's a base of people who have resisted Gaddafi. Um, Some of them are elites, many of them are Islamists, Um, but it's an easy tap for the British intelligence services to turn on and off. In 1996, the the MI5, MI6 attempts to use um, the LIFG to assassinate Gaddafi. It fails. Um, the plot is exposed through a, a um, MI5 document leaked online by um, apparently internal sources. The Guardian reported on this in 2002. Um, 9-11 happens. And right. that kind of puts these, um, you know, this whole project of using Islam as proxies uh, and, and, and the intelligence services who've been weaponizing them on their back foot. They have to do a war on terror. Um, so, you know, the LIFG gets classified in 2004 by the British as a terror group. The U.S. does the same a year later. Now, was this sincere? Were, were these, was this transformation following uh, 9-11, was that a sincere uh, move by the sort of the secret uh, services? Or, or was, was that kind of a, a cynical ploy to kind of maintain the, the, the operation with, without uh, the public scrutiny? I mean, what, what you saw in the U.S. was the prosecution of Muslim leadership. Um, you know, some of them were maybe Islamists, but they didn't appear to pose any threat to American national security. Mm-hmm. Most of them were Palestinian, and they were sort of convenient uh, targets. Um, you look, like the Holy Land Foundation, Samuel Arian. These right, are right. leaders of Muslim civic society inside the U.S. who really had no value for the empire and were easy 
marks and targets and they just threw them in jail forever or ruined their lives and deported them. Meanwhile, the U.S. had set itself um, to a policy of regime change abroad against figures like Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein um, that it had always, that had been on the kind of neoconservative and interventionist hit, lit, hit list for years, for well before 9-11. All they had to do was convince the public that these figures presented a threat to national security. And to come up with this fantastical link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda and Iran and just link Al-Qaeda to the, to the, to the figures that had been keeping Al-Qaeda at bay. Um, so I think the war on terror actually led to the intensification of international jihadism. And that worked well for a group of elites, whether they're, you know, the CEO or stockholders at Lockheed Martin or the, you know, neoconservatives ensconced at the American Enterprise Institute um, or liberal interventionists like Samantha Power and Anne-Marie Slaughter, Power and Slaughter, the most two appropriately named figures in the foreign policy establishment. Um, liberal feminist empowerment there. Yeah, yeah, let's go liberate the women of Libya by putting them under the control of ISIS. That worked out. And then we'll just move on to the next thing in Syria and pretend like Libya never happened. So it worked. The war on terror, um, which is, you know, not only it, which is put um, populate like the, the it was supposed to protect the citizens of the West and preserve the West in the minds of its um, creators has done exactly the opposite but it's benefited a group of elites very well. Right. So if history is, 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 uh, has any fidelity to the truth, this era will go down in, in, in the annals of, of history as, as the time when the war on terror uh, ended up spawning extreme versions of terror across the world. Uh, so let's talk about Libya. What kind of – describe the battlefield to us. What, what, what did Salman Abedi as a, as a teenager experience during his time in Libya? And, and what kind of world are we living in when folks with those experiences are then transported back to their home countries in Britain, France, or the United States? Well, I mean, where is his home country? I mean, we have a phenomenon now where we just – uh, I mean, it's really the result, I guess you could say, most crudely of neoliberalism, where you have mil hundreds of millions of people who don't feel at home anywhere and are not able to live in any home country. So he was clearly returning to Libya with a sense of deep alienation, uh, loss of place. And then he's returning to a country that NATO has turned into a failed state, um, where the, the state has just simply disappeared um, it's, you know, become oh, oh, once again, like Afghanistan in the early and mid nineties, you're seeing a war of all against all, a war of warlords, um, whose shores are the, one of the world's main disembarkation points for migrants. Um, these are people who are fleeing conflict and poverty in sub-Saharan Africa where the, you know, and from countries, the West is pillaged, um, who are actually being held back by Gaddafi. Um, they're now, according to UNICEF, being beaten, raped, and starved in living hell holes. That's the words UNICEF used. Um, the UN has recorded testimony of people in Libya who've witnessed sub-Saharan African migrants being sold in open-air slave markets. Um, this is the world that power and slaughter, the liberal feminist interventionists, have brought to Libya and it's the world that Salman Abedi entered when he returned. It's a world where death is everywhere. Um, and 
you know, these, the Islamist militia that controls Muammar Gaddafi's hometown, where he ushered in his secular al-Fatah revolution uh, for the past several years until recently, is ISIS. And they were supplanted by the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, a former al-Qaeda affiliate. So not much of a great improvement there. Um, and so Abedi returns to the UK intent, according to the FBI, um, whose warnings the MI5 mysteriously ignored, on carrying out political assassinations. Um, he was telling his neighbors that he wanted to, that he was interested in suicide bombing. He became furious with his local imam when his imams pre- spoke out against Ansar al-Sharia and ISIS in Libya, um, the Islamic State in the Maghreb. Right. And he was reported to the British to a British anti-terror hotline by his neighbors. The Muslim community in Manchester rejected him and his outlook. It wasn't like he was in some base of terror where people sympathized with him. But we have to ask why the warnings were ignored, why the call was ignored, why the FBI was ignored. And what I, the question that I asked, um, because we still don't even know which group in Libya that Abedi was part of. We still don't even know. Um, the question I asked in my piece in Alternate is, were the British intelligence services grooming him as an informant? Did he have a relationship, a pre-existing uh-huh. relationship with them? Because as I wrote um, back in, I think it was 2015, Mohammed Mwazi, the kid from East London who wound up as the most famous beheader of ISIS, who decapitated uh-huh. James Foley, was being recruited by the MI5, and he left the UK because they had made his life so miserable and because he had refused to cooperate and wound up in Syria just looking for any group to join. So was that the relationship that Salman Abedi enjoyed? So far, we've only heard that the MI5 will investigate itself. Uh, What we need is a public inquiry, and we need to know what did Theresa May know and when did she know it? And British journalists need to start asking these questions um, in the Paxton kind of quasi town hall last night that was broadcast on UK Channel 4, she wasn't asked these kinds of questions. And this is what British citizens need to know because their lives have been put at risk by these cynical imperial policies. And British Muslims need to ask these questions because yes. they are being yes. used as human poker chips by yeah. the most cynical interests in the world. And Muslims have been used by the West um, as collateral for years and years and years, whether they're refugees, uh, Afghan mujahideen, they're just simply being used. And so these questions need to be asked. Right. So this brings to mind, Keenan uh, uh, Malik had a take in the Guardian piece. Was, uh, he asked the question, how did the left radicalism of my Manchester youth give way to Islamism? Uh, Malik recounts that to be young and Muslim in Britain during his childhood meant to be involved in leftist politics. Uh, but he, he, he sort of mourns the fact that now following the decimation of the left in that country, in the dawn of neoliberalism and so on and so forth, poor and marginalized Muslim kids are potentially embracing an extreme form of far-right Islamism. So we've talked a little bit about the factors involved there in terms of three-fourths of the army, uh, the forces, the, you know, the anti-Qaddafi forces in Libya came from Manchester and so on and so forth. But what do you make of Malik's take? I mean, I think it's a really important one to, to focus on the domestic aspect in terms of the British politics in, in contributing to the rise of Islamism. 
But, you know, I, I really like Malik, so, you know, no uh, disrespect to him or his perspective. He's a really sophisticated commentator, but it seems to paint a picture of this sort of, uh, you know, unstoppable uh, insurgent Islamism that's growing um, in the alleyways of Manchester. And, and it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to mirror the facts involved here. You know, uh, I bet he was reported by his neighbors, as you mentioned, he was expelled and banned from his mosque. So what do you make of this take and, and how do you think we need to uh, sort of amend it to, to in- include your international foreign policy take? Well, I, I can give some an anecdotal take first, which is that, you know, I've spent time in Manchester. I've spent time around the UK and a lot of, uh, uh, um, you know, including in the so-called no-go zones that Stephen Emerson and American Islamophobes have alleged existed. And they clearly don't exist because I was a welcome guest there. Um, and I've heard local Muslims complain that there seems to be a deliberate project uh, to amplify the influence of Wahhabi-style Islam and that uh, mosques are coming in that are being funded from the Gulf, uh, which are pushing this kind of project. Um, and this isn't organic. And these are, it's being pushed by, you know, the Gulf states, specifically Saudi Arabia, that have been imperial handmaidens and partners with the West and specifically with the British um, to protect British empire, now to protect Israel and now, and also to advance this um, kind of militaristic posture towards Iran, which we saw on display with Trump's um, visit to Riyadh. Um, but, you know, there's this there's this cliche, which I think, you know, all cliches exist because they're at least half true, that what we're seeing now is not um, the radicalization of Islam, but the Islamification of radicalism. That's what, kind of what I think nice. Malik is getting at here. But I don't know if he, 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 he seldom puts things in the context of empire or in a political right. context. Um, he's part of, you know, the English club, these kind of New Yorker style writers, and they, they write in really florid language about, you know, individualized experiences and you don't really get much of an analysis there. But I mean, we have to look at the whole history of cooperation between the West, Western intelligence services and Islamist groups. I mean, Islamist groups have always been a convenient proxy for the West in preventing the spread of communism and post-colonial Arab nationalism in the Middle East, whether it was the overthrow of Mossadegh through Operation Ajax in um, Iran, which led directly, ultimately, to the Iranian Revolution, um, to um, the use of the Muslim Brotherhood, the weaponization of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt against Nasser, um, to, uh, in Afghanistan, the CIA's um, Asia Foundation. This was a CIA-backed foundation that funded um, the Afghan Islamist movement at Kabul University. Um, Gubaldin Hekmatyar, um, uh, uh, Burhanuddin Rabani, the professor of Islamic studies at Kabul University. They attacked leftists in the street. They threw acid in the faces of uncovered women. They mounted a campaign to drive women off the campus of Kabul University at a time when there was, for the first time, a women's rights movement in Afghanistan. They were backed by the CIA. And what happened? Uh, Who became the top recipient of CIA money during the anti-Soviet jihad? It was Gubuddin Hekmatyar, who is his spiritual advisor. It was 
the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, who later entered the U.S. following the anti-Soviet jihad on a CIA visa. This is well established. It was in his obituary in the Boston Globe. Uh, he enters the U.S. on a CIA visa, and then he's put on trial later uh, for attempting to bomb the Lincoln Tunnel, the Hudson Bridge, and even accused of being involved in the first uh, World Trade Center bombing. I don't know if he had any role there, but and he also be, and then he be, and he's also Project Zero of the Islamophobia Project. So it all goes back to empire. Like this isn't an organic movement. It was weaponized, funded to the hilt, and supported by the West to crush the Soviet Union and create this kind of Islamist green belt around um, the Warsaw Pact. And you know, I could just talk for another half hour about it, but it's continuing today in Syria. Uh, in an effort to bleed Russia. We saw Thomas Friedman last month even argue that ISIS should be supported inside Syria, that we should not allow ISIS to be defeated in Syria because we must bleed Iran and Russia. I mean, that was on the op-ed pages of the New York Times by you know, the, lead, the world's leading voice of neoliberalism. Uh, and, and, and also, I mean, look at the legacy of Zbigniew Brzezinski, who just died. I mean, this is one of the figures who conceived this project. And he was lauded today by David Ignatius um, as this, you know, the, the hero and icon of the liberal internationalist order. The liberal internationalist order has been nothing but disorder and chaos, and it's continuing to threaten the lives of everyone. A lot of dead pundits there, uh, some somewhere. Well, there are a lot of dead pundits in the Middle East who said the wrong things. <laughs> That's true on both sides. So I want to push back a little bit. Let's play devil's advocate. Uh, some might say, some on the left, in, particularly in Britain, have even pushed back on Malik's take to say that he's even going too far because what he's doing and what certainly you're doing is denying the agency of these Muslim youth in Britain and elsewhere. Uh, you know, where they're responding to legitimate foreign policy grievances, they're responding to uh, their dictatorial, uh, you know, leaders, or they're responding to uh, U.S. and Western imperialism in their country. I mean, my God, they're U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia, these types of tropes that you hear following 9-11 and, and, and so on. So what do you say to those folks who want to insist on the unique agency of someone like a Salman Abedi? I mean, I, when I always hear this term agency from like, you know, the, co the collection of grad students who pose as leftists but <laughs> want regime change everywhere. Agency, agency. And you think when they, whenever I hear agency, I just hear shut up now. But uh, I mean, the people who say you're denying agency are denying the role of the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. Um, agency for International Development and the <laughs> MI6 agency in yeah. giving these youth not only... Um, the ability to travel to war zones, but the weapons to kill and the training to do it. Um, and you have to wonder what would happen otherwise. So, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're actually justifying, not just the Manchester bombing, but you're justifying proxy wars in Syria that are designed to overthrow uh, the Syrian government, and install an exclusively Sunni Islamist government, proxy wars uh, in Libya, and which require Western backing, which require the Central Intelligence Agency's funding and support, uh, you pretty much forfeit your agency. You pretty much forfeit your right 
to offer any kind of analysis in my view. And right. you're then, certainly not a leftist. I mean, I, not, not one that I can sort of recognize or identify in any sense. It's also, uh, you know, it's all, it also reinforces the Islamophobic view that Muslims in general are so outraged. Uh, when Muslims become outraged, uh, they immediately turn to violence and that we need to not, uh, yeah. we need to, um, you know, not do this or do this because Muslims will turn violent. That's not been the response of, um, of, of Muslims in, in general across the West in immigrant communities, which are placed under surveillance, which are discriminated against, who are facing uh, unprecedented levels of systematic racism. Um, that hasn't been their response. Um, so I, I just, I, I kind of, re- I reject this analysis, but, but beyond that, it's like, it's, it's an argument for intensified intervention. Um, it's not an argument against intervention. When we hear, like, when, when I talk about the White Helmets, for example, the Syrian civil defense group, which is actually substantially a, a public relations ploy designed to tug at the heartstrings of suggestible liberals in the West so they'll support regime change in a no-fly zone in Syria. When I talk about their backing from USAID and from the British Foreign Office, I get accused of denying the agency of these rescue workers who just want to rescue right. people. And it's like, you're actually denying uh you're, you're denying what this whole project is about. And in effect, you are creating space and advancing interventionism. Um, and isn't it that interventionism that's supposed to be at the heart of what you say are Muslim grievances? So it's kind of like an inherently contradictory argument. And I just, I'm sick of hearing it. I'm sick of being told to shut up and not talk about the context and, I'm 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 just sick of this whole um this whole plague that we're facing uh being dumbed down and cast in terms of really brain dead individualized identity politics right and simplistic narratives that sort of makes one feel very secure and confident in the worth of their analysis, right? Because you can sort of cut and paste that onto multiple different, you know, uh, scenes uh, and, and sound and feel, you know, secure that you know what you're talking about, right? You just sort of cut and paste it onto Syria. Well, there you, you have the struggle narrative. Cut and paste it onto Libya. Oh, you have this organic struggle narrative. Cut and paste it into Manchester. Here's your ready-made organic struggle narrative, right? You don't need to know anything about the history, the context, the players involved, the international dimension. Well, I mean, if you want to respect the agency of the people who are fighting Assad in Syria, uh, then let's ask them what they really want and who they really are. And that's another thing you're forbidden to do. Like, are we allowed to ask um, Abdullah Mohaseni, the most influential uh, ideologue operating within the Syrian opposition, embedded within the Syrian opposition, who happens to be a Saudi jihadist cleric who said that he's dedicated to purging Syria of Shia, Druze, Alawites, and Christians, and establishing uh, a Saudi-style emirate um, in a previously pluralistic society, basically black flags flying over Damascus. That's the agenda of the Syrian armed opposition. And if we listen to what Muhaysani says in his speak in his in his um, speeches, which are translated and widely available on the YouTube channel of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is the kind of rebranded Al-Qaeda group in Syria, or we listen to his father, Mohammed Mohaysani's speeches in Mecca, who is constantly calling for the slaughter of Christians, Jews, and Shia. Uh, 
and are, are we Islamophobic for talking about that? That's the agency of the Saudis who have kind of come in and ideologically weaponized the Syrian opposition. So, I mean, either way, it doesn't work. You're not talking about a very good project for humanity, whether it's the project that the CIA is pushing and uh, the, or the Gulf states are pushing, or which the armed opposition in Syria and Libya has readily accepted. It's not a good one, especially right. if you're on the left. I mean, it's, it's just, how, does, how can you defend that? If you're a far right extremist uh, Islamist, you know, with a Wahhabist or Salafist sort of ideology, it's fantastic. But I don't, I don't think we're that. Last time I checked, anyway. So let's let's finish up uh, talking about the long term, the medium to long term implications of this attack in Manchester, because the sort of development of this proxy force on the international scene by Western intelligence services to do their bidding. Uh, is is now, to use a, a good old down-home phrase my grandmother would have said, the chickens are coming home to roost, right? Um, and so what you saw in Manchester, unfortunately, it's inevitable that we're going to see it all across the, the, the developed Western world. I mean, it's just a matter of time, unfortunately. Um, and ISIS is, is developing its, its strength uh, globally, even as they are being defeated in the Middle East. Uh, most folks will have heard there was an attack on an Egyptian Coptic Christians. Uh, ISIS killed 29 people. They bombed a bus carrying those folks. Uh, ISIS bombed Baghdad yesterday. There were two bombings. 13 people were killed as they broke their fast at an ice cream shop. And 14 were later killed in an office bombing. Uh, and recently as well, ISIS-linked terrorists in the Philippines took over 240 hostages, most of whom which were, uh, were Christian. And so this is a project of uh, violent far-right Islamism that's, that's sweeping the, the, the globe in a really scary sort of way. And, and you say all of these are connected. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I actually was watching an interview with uh, Rodrigo Duterte, who is sort of be is becoming the most hated man in America, although we know absolutely nothing about him. We just constantly hear uh, about whatever insane comment he made from day to day. Um, there's very little context provided to American news consumers about why he's so popular in the Philippines, why he was elected. He was complaining about ISIS, and he said that we've already arrested, um, we've, we've killed five ISIS members recently, and um, they came from the Middle East and from the West. They're foreign fighters, and that southern islands of Philippines are infested with foreign fighters now. Um, they started coming with the Abu Sayyaf group, which was formed by, just like the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, Afghan war veterans um, who'd been trained by the CIA. When John Cooley came out with his um, book, which is a really important book on the CIA's involvement in weaponizing Islamist proxies, uh, unholy wars, um, a, uh, the Filipino Senate, actually, uh, a senator, uh, Pimento, attempted to initiate hearings on the role of the CIA in bringing the Abu Sayyaf group to, to the Philippines. He was so shocked by what he read. Um, the State Department has refused to ship 26,000 weapons that Duterte, um, 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 small arms, um, rifles that Duterte had requested for counterterror operations. Um, and who was it who refused to um, ship those weapons? I think it was Lindsey Graham on the Armed Services Committee. Not exactly. Oh you know, someone who's an anti-war figure. Um, so Duterte has had to turn to China and Russia uh, to fight ISIS. And he said, Russia will give me the weapons, no questions asked, but I need to do this to hold the country together. 
which has intensified the um, you know antipathy of the U.S. for Duterte because he's turning out, he's he's moving out of the U.S. fold. But what we're talking about here, whether it's in Egypt, uh, Philippines, um, or in Manchester, is what's known as a disposal problem. Um, it was a term that came into use after the CIA started training Cuban exiles in the early 60s for a big operation against Fidel Castro. After the Bay of Pigs failed, they returned to Miami. They had been ideologically hardened and trained Train, to train carry out yeah. not just war, but subterfuge, guerrilla subterfuge, bomb making, this kind of stuff, kidnapping, um, hostage taking. And what the CIA did was it created a bunch of operations in Miami, whether it was you know, kind of social clubs or little training camps, just to keep them busy, um, to prevent the disposal problem from blowing back into the U.S. Um, in 1996, in the Senate Intelligence Committee, there was a hearing on um, Central American proxy wars that the CIA had fought and the problems that it could face afterwards, um, and including um, drug running from these countries that the, that the U.S. had destabilized in Central America, all the way down to Colombia. Um, and Jack Bloom was the researcher who had been hired, I think, through the office of John Kerry to provide expert testimony. And he warned um, that one of the problems the U.S. was going to face was not just from Latin America, but from Afghanistan, and that there was a disposal problem um, that the CIA had just waged the largest covert operation in its history in Afghanistan, and that these figures that it had trained and who, or who gained training um, were going abroad to Algeria, to Chechnya, to Bosnia, and elsewhere, and that a disaster was looming on the horizon. Um, Bloom told me that he gave a subsequent talk. I spoke to him uh, a few months ago, and he told me that he gave a subsequent talk at the Library of Congress where he made the same, issued the same warnings, and he said that the U.S. is not investing in human intelligence. Instead, it's, inv it's putting all its money into ridiculous weapon systems like the B-2 stealth bomber. He, would, he was addressing a congressional panel at the Library of Congress that included Bob Dornan. Um, they called him B-2 Bob from Orange County. Republican who was so obsessed with getting the stealth bomber built in his district to create jobs um, that he had Jack Bloom's testimony disappeared from the Library of Congress record for years. It, it didn't appear in the record for years. So, of course, 9-11 happened five years later and everything Bloom said came to a head. It was proven, all of his darkest warnings were proven right. And right. what we're experiencing now um, is, is it, the, the, the danger is, is so dramatically amplified. And I think one of the results of the blowback that we're experiencing is that the left has no ability to respond in a way that average people can understand. I think Jeremy Corbyn has started kind of breaking the ice on that discussion on how the war on terror has put people in danger. Um, but in the Democratic Party in the U.S., we hear nothing about that. Um, and across Europe, what you've seen is the far right fill the void because they're the ones, they're capitalist parties who are standing up against austerity, against the EU, and they're calling for restrictionist policies and non-interventionist policies. And that's what average people in Europe are responding to while the left is either completely silent or they're taking the kind of um, 
left center left approach, which is to wage these interventionist wars, create masses of refugees, and then accept all the refugees and force everyone else to pay the consequences, including those refugees who are going to have very little chance of adjusting uh, into a healthy life in Europe uh, as long as the you know austerity project is is taking hold. Right. And on the far left, what you see there is is this sort of blanket anti-Islamophobia approach, right, which refuses to distinguish between these violent far right reactionary uh, death squads that are they're cropping up across the globe uh, from just, you know, your everyday average uh, Muslims who do require protection from both state and private uh, repression. Yeah, I mean, you actually do see a debate on what you would call the far left um, around this and the debate, uh, in the U S on the far left is kind of between the PSL and the ISO, the international socialist organization, which is sort of a Trotskyist group. And what the, and, and, you know, the, the PSL arguments, I'm not a, they're, they're denigrated as tankies, um, or Stalinists. They just ring true to me they seem to they seem much more practical to me and it is this is a group that fights islamophobia but this is also this was also the only group that was out in the streets protesting uh trump's bombing of syria um the iso has had its leadership and members clamoring for regime change in syria this is a trotskyist group that reflects the same ideological orientation as the neoconservatives or the directors of the national endowment for democracy which is a U.S. funded group which backs regime change around the world. Carl Gershman was a member of the Socialist Party and was a Trotskyist. So, the, Ashley Smith Ashley is leading a panel at uh, the Left Forum this coming weekend. I'm going to be there, and uh, so they're they're still pushing this narrative, even though the sort of freedom fighter, uh, <laughs> freedom fighter mythology in Syria has really crumbled. They're still pushing this narrative. Well, what what the Trotskyists are arguing for is just permanent revolution, and wherever there's a revolution, they have to support it, regardless of the consequences. And PSL members. Um, seem to take a much more sober approach, which is that you actually need states to provide people with resources. Um, and you know, Syria as a state was extremely authoritarian, but it also provided free medical care, free education, colleges, electricity in rural areas. And that state has been whittled down to the bone by Western sanctions and these proxy groups. And it's caused a refugee crisis that's fueled the far right in Europe and the ISO its only response has been, let's hug a refugee. There is no real analysis there. So it's absurd to me. And yeah, you're right. Left Forum will not only feature Ashley Smith, um, someone who is not only backed regime change in Syria, but in Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, You're going to see figures like um, Razan Ghazawi, who said that she hates leftists. She, She explicitly says she hates leftists be flown in uh, from the UK and Joseph Daher, another right. regime change uh, Trotskyist. Be- You're all on the same panel. That's going to be a banger if you can if you can show up. He's being that. flown in and from Geneva. Uh, yeah. You know Molly Crabapple, who's this another uh, you know one of the leading kind of uh, re- regime change advocates is on the is on the top panel is on the main panel. Um, and then there are three or four other figures from the ISO or other groups who support regime change in Syria, and it's just like. This is, it's, not, it's not just that the ISO has an agenda um, to its own. 
to push uh, regime change in Syria without any analysis of what comes next. Um, it seems to me they have an agenda to divide, to use Syria as a tool to divide and fracture the left um, and to shatter the anti-imperial foundations of left-wing organizing. Right. It's certainly fragmented uh, beyond all recognition, the Palestinian solidarity movement in the, in the U.S. I saw this coming in a campus group that I was helping to advise uh, several years ago. I saw it coming and I knew it was going to decimate the Palestinian justice movement. And it has. It's absolutely sp- it's split them uh, and it's destroyed them. And I don't know. I'm, I'm a former ISO member from several several years back. And so I'm very familiar with their the both the personnel and the tactics. And and, you know, it seems to me that. This is the kind of organic struggle model that I'm talking about, where you just sort of cut and paste this narrative onto any given context, and and you can make instantly make sense of it uh, without having any you know knowledge of the history or context or anything like that. You know, as you mentioned, we have to wrap up, but it's really dangerous uh, because we're producing a significant blowback, and unfortunately, Salman Abedi's heinous attack uh, on the on the uh, concert in Manchester will not be the last. No, it, it won't be. We don't know where it'll happen next. Um, but the best thing we can do is start. Uh, we, it, there, this is an opportunity amid a British election where for the first time that I can remember since the time of Tony Benn, um, Tony Benn's acolyte, Jeremy Corbyn, a real principled left-wing candidate, has a chance. It's an outside chance, but he does have a chance of victory. And this has become an election issue. Um so the issue is empire, and we have to make it about empire and not allow right-wing demagogues or the faux left to deflect blame from where it lies. Um, we have to hold the interventionists accountable before they can strike again. That's absolutely right. Well, thanks again, Max, for joining us. You've uh, performed a great service in order to help us contextualize the sort of movements that are going around today and what kind of positions we need to have in order to change these things for the better. Thanks again, Max, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. And that's our show. I hope you learned a lot. I know I did. Max always drops ridiculous amounts of knowledge. Uh, I'm going to have him back on the show in in a couple of months to try to unpack some more of this stuff. I really want to stay with this, uh, you know, Syria, uh, Salafism, Wahhabism, uh, American and Western foreign policy shtick, because, you know, first of all, very few people are doing it. Uh, The gray zone on Alternet is clearly doing it, uh, but very few others in the English-speaking world are really taking this on, particularly from a left perspective, and I think it's really important to develop these ideas. So I think Max, uh, along with Ron Yakalik and Ben Norton, are going to be regulars on our show to continue following some of these developments as they inevitably arise. In any case, thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. Check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Donate to the show if you can. If you can't, I appreciate your comments, compliments, and constructive criticism. Share me on Twitter. Share me on Facebook. Tell your friends. uh, Whatever you can do to support the show, it's deeply appreciated. In any case, starting next week, I'm going to be starting off our Anti-Essentialism Summer Series 2017. Get excited, people. I know I'm very excited. Joining me is going to be Cedric Johnson. The man has an essay in the uh, first issue of Catalyst Magazine. That's out from Jacobin, and I'm going to be interviewing him about that and so much more. The man has a really important perspective for how to handle black politics and socialism today. 
So in any case, you're not going to want to miss it. Tune in next week. Till then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother... Yeah.